0: Welcome to All Sides with Ann Fisher. Americans are becoming loners. We spend more time alone than with others. Our individual pools of friends tend to be smaller. a decade ago, the average American spent about six and a half hours a week with friends. A few years later, that number has dropped to four hours. By 2021, well, you can probably guess, but the trend predates the pandemic. Christy Tate is the author of the new book published in February titled BFF: A Memoir of Feb- Friendship Lost and Found. It's a Reese's Book Club selection. She's also author of the 2020 New York Times bestseller Group: How One Therapist in a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. Welcome to the, sh- the show, Christy.
1: Thanks for having me in.
0: Um, you know, it was just just before we went on the air you were saying that you were glad the success came to you later in life and That has that's kind of there's a parallel construction
1: there with success at friendships as well, right? Absolutely. I definitely I had a lot of maturing to do. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was because I had maturing to do as a friend in my 30s and in my 40s. And I haven't seen that story out in the world. And like Toni Morrison told us, if you haven't seen the story, you need to write it. And this book is for other people who have struggled into adulthood in forming lasting longing, long, loyal connections with other women.
0: This was something that you were acutely pained by at a very young age, your connection with other women.
1: Yes, that is true. I remember even, even in grammar school, being at snack time and looking around and feeling a sense of a great sense of apartness. Like I'm not quite like these other girls. They all seem to be Um, comfortable in their skin that's probably not how I would have said it as a five-year-old but they seem to bond easily and have joy and lightness and I was sort of a heavy-hearted kid who was not able to just easily slide into friendships
0: there is some remark you made in the book about as a child thinking everybody kind of knows something they, they know something I don't know
1: Yes, that's the sense I had early on about friendship, that I was somehow standing just on the outside of it. And part of it was this pressure of this cultural idea that you should have a best friend forever and you should find that person and your mom should be friends. Like I had this whole idea. And when that wasn't happening for me and I imagined it happened for other people, I felt like a failure. And it it compounded my sense of there's something kind of wrong with me and how I move through the world.
0: But so then, as I'm reading the book, on the other hand, you had lots of friends over the years—really interesting, fun, wonderful people.
1: Yes, that is. So it's true. not like
0: you've been a quote unquote what we might think of as a loner. You've always had friends.
1: Yes, I have always had friends. And what I what I came to understand probably in my early 20s was there were these wonderful friends around me at my fingertips and I was having trouble letting them get close to me. I was the barrier. It wasn't that there was a lack of people or lack of access. I was kind of scared of people. And I didn't know, I didn't know how to be a person who could exhale, let people come over without having to clean up the house and clean myself up just to have casual, intimate friendships. It just eluded me.
0: You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. I'm talking with bestselling author uh, Christy Tate. She, Her new book is titled... BFF, A Memoir of Friendship Lost and Found. It's a Reese's Book Club selection, and she's with me here. If you have a question or comment forge Christy Tate, give us a call, 614-292-8513, or you can email us at allsides at wosu.org. Her 2020 book, a New York Times bestseller, is titled Group, How One Therapist in a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. Um, what... What does friendship mean? What did friendship connote to you
1: back as a child? What What did it mean? As a child, I think I had this very unrealistic storybook idea about friendship, which was totally devoid of like actual people. I thought friendship was nonstop bliss and complete common ground. So when I would interact with other friends and we would have conflict or other people would be around so I would feel threatened, all of those feelings were so overwhelming to me. The scarcity, envy, conflict. I didn't have the skills as a kid and even as a young adult to navigate those big feelings. So I would sort of keep myself at a distance. I think that's what the distance was about. It was about not having the skills to do the work of true intimacy, which is really different than the fantasy of we're going to get friends bracelets and we're going to be BFFs and we're going to ride off into the sunset the clash of reality and fantasy made it really hard to settle in
0: uh, you know I had a best run in grade school and there was another girl that always wanted to steal her right mm-hmm. but I felt I did not feel threatened by that I thought the other girl was a jerk and I just had a lot of trust in my friendship and knew that I could share her that was something that eluded you as as, as a child
1: yeah, I'm so happy to hear you say that, that there are girls out there or young children doesn't have not to be. Not that girls. the other
0: girl didn't tick me off, don't get me wrong. Yeah. And I was ob-
1: I thought she was ob- obnoxious
0: in her pursuit <laughs> of my friend.
1: But Yeah, that that sense of a threat would topple me completely. I did not have the word you said was trust. I did not have that inner sense of trust, which made me kind of a needy, neurotic friend who's constantly threatened. And it was, I was always feeling like I had to elbow out any threats, which is not a kind way to be a part of a circle for sure.
0: Right. It cost you. Yes. You um, lit, went to a Catholic school, then they switched you to a public school for one year. That didn't go so well.
1: No, in the year that I embarked on my public school career as a in grammar school it was 5th grade and I was overwhelmed again, like I'd been wearing a uniform. Now I'm wearing jeans and moccasins and curling my hair and there's boys everywhere. It was so different. And immediately day one, I pinpointed the queen bee of fifth grade and I set my sights on her and I ruthlessly social climbed. I mean, there's really no other way to say it. And I have compassion for the younger me who was trying to survive, but I was very unkind to the other girls and just wanted to hoard this queen bee because I thought that was what social safety was. I did not know that safety is really being calm, being trusting, making lots of friends. I just wanted queen bee and I wanted to stand next to her in her glowing light and that was it.
0: You didn't want to necessarily be much of a friend.
1: Exactly. There's nothing, (laughs) there's nothing about true friendship in any of that. Like I don't even know if pressed, if I could have said what I liked about the Queen Bee, what I saw was her social power, and I found it very seductive. And needless to say, when we fell out in February, all the other girls didn't have my back, and why would they? I hadn't paid any attention to them, And I ended up extremely isolated by my own actions. And I was 11 at the time, but I remember going home that day crying like, I got a note. I'm not allowed to sit with the queen bee at lunch anymore, which is not a cool thing to do. But I hadn't hadn't brought a lot of kindness and generosity into the circle. So I got what I deserved. And I did learn that lesson which I'm grateful for, but it's very painful to be alone for three months in fifth grade.
0: I can't remember if you wrote about how your mom reacted to the news that you couldn't sit with the Queen Bee anymore. But, and I'm curious about that because she wasn't very understanding or intuitive about what was going on with you when your younger sister was born.
1: That is true. That is very true. So in fifth grade, I in fifth grade, my mom could see the writing on the wall. She could tell that I was way too fixated on the queen bee and that that could have really disastrous consequences. And I remember her gently, I would say, oh, I want to have a slumber party again with the queen bee. And she would slowly encourage me, what about Ashley or Lily? Or she would name seven girls and I'd be like, no, no, no. So I know she was gently trying to guide me, which was a very loving act now that I'm a mom I understand it's very hard to get a kid to do what you want them to do socially and when my sister was born I was three and my or I was four and my sister was born and I was I felt very displaced not not a totally uncommon situation Mm -hmm. but my sense was that my sister was the golden baby of the family, and I was, kind of, I was kind of a mess. And I kind of was. I had colic. My sister slept through the night from day one and had blonde hair, and I was kind of a messy child with big feelings and lots of questions and discontent, which is a little bit hard to parent. Now that I'm a parent, I understand that, um, but I didn't know that when I was 9, 10, and 11.
0: Right. Um, And you could have used someone saying no matter what.
1: Yes, I could have definitely used like the messaging of unconditional parenting. I felt lots of I felt a lot of pressure. And I think back in that day, like I don't think anybody knew to pull kids aside and say, be who you are, be who you want to be. And whoever you pick as friends is fine. I thought I was supposed to go out to school and be a trailblazer socially and make good grades and smile and be skinny and be a cheerleader. And that was just a lot of pressure for a kid like me who was kind of lost emotionally from really early on.
0: You reminded me of a time right after my baby brother was born when my dad was running through the neighborhood, jumping over hedges saying, it's a boy, it's a boy, it's a boy. And I thought, What's so great about that?
1: Exactly. I do think, I mean, I think when I think to my about my family structure, like lots of kids have an adjustment when a baby sibling is born. I think what sort of compounded some of the stress of that for me and for my family is there had been, you know, a lot of addiction in my family and my dad had gotten sober right before my sister was born. So then the glow of sobriety, which is a wonderful thing for a sick family, she my sister got some credit in my mind for sobriety and good times, and I felt like, well, I'm part of a reason to drink. I'm, I'm a symptom of alcoholism, which is a, such a burden. And I didn't have the language to say, I think I'm a reason to drink and she's a reason to live. I didn't have that. But there, that was swirling in the air, and I was just sensitive enough to pick up on it and just take it and run with it.
0: You it, mentioned that she should have been your best friend. You saw other friends with their best friends being their sister. How have you resolved with your sister?
1: Yeah, you know, it's been very interesting. She's a very, very private person, which is, it's interesting. You talk about opposites, like I'm out here writing books about my most intimate parts of my life and she's very very private and how we resolve that is we just give each other a lot of space and a lot of grace and you know she's asked me not to write about her family and I never would mm-hmm. but with this book I couldn't tell the story of who I am as a friend without who I understood myself to be as a sister.
0: And I would imagine that's true for a lot of people what what the relationship with their
1: siblings are I don't say it dictates but it 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 colors. That is certainly my thesis, and I'm hearing from readers that they have the same oh, I'm, I am I. have friends who are the golden sister or readers who have felt like they were the sister in my position and it's just very complicated. Then I hear from readers who had like five sisters and I'm like, tell me everything because that sounds so complicated to me, you know? <laughs> like, that's a lot of energy.
0: That's a lot of clothes getting borrowed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of fights over it. My guest is Christy Tate. She's author of a new book. It's titled BFF, A Memoir of Friendship Lost and Found. It's a Reese's book called Selection. She's also author of the twenty. 20 new york times bestseller group how one therapist and a circle of strangers save my life we will get back to it if you have a question or comment for christy state christy tate give us a call 614-292-8513 or you can email us at allsides at wosu.org you're listening to all sides with ann fisher on 897 7 npr news
2: This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies.
0: Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. We're talking about friendship, the fragility of friendship for some, the strength of friendship for others, and what it takes to be a good friend. Chrissy Tate is the author of a new book. It's titled BFF, A Memoir of Friendship Lost and Found. If you have a question or comment for Christy Tate, give us a call, 614-292-8513, or email us at allsides at wosu.org. So one of the myths that you want to debunk in this book is that friendships come naturally, especially to girls. What about that gender difference?
1: I think about that all the time. And I think that there's an idea that if you're a girl or a woman Friendship comes naturally to you. It's a skill set you're born with, and it should be effortless and easy, and we all support each other. And maybe that's true for some girls and women. It has not been true for me. And I think where I've gotten tripped up is friendships take work. They take effort in the same way. I would never imagine that my marriage shouldn't take work. So I'm surprised how surprised I was that my friendships take work and there's hard times and there's leaner times when I'm with my friends and other times where I'm bursting with joy and connection. But to ride out those different waves and different seasons of a friendship has been very difficult.
0: You also have mourned Every single friendship that you thought you've lost, and I don't want to give away the end of the book, but you know, but you mourn them, and you can you like pile on yourself as failure. I I definitely
1: there were places where absolutely mourning is the right word. Like friendships that I let go of. I mean, some I don't think all friendships are meant to last forever, but there were friendships that I backed out of for reasons that did create heartbreak in me like when I just because of shame I was very ashamed when I was in my young 20s and actually all through my early 30s as well I was ashamed that I was kind of a mess romantically and all my friends had settled down and they would bought their first houses and they were having babies and I was still on j-date or online dating and I felt embarrassed about who I was in life and I couldn't bring my friends into that so I just Essentially we call it ghosting but really I just drifted away out of shame and I felt really sad about those losses cuz I knew those friends would have supported me and I couldn't bear it I just couldn't bear it
0: to let them know how you were feeling.
1: Yes, I couldn't stand being a seventh wheel or a third wheel when we would all go out and I wanted to sort of get shaped up and then I would come back which is not how friendship works like and plus it took a long time so 30 years went by and and then I just didn't then I didn't know how to get back in with a friend? How do you reappear? Like, hi, I'm back. I feel better about myself. Do you want to go to lunch? Like, actually, that would probably be fine, but I, I didn't, I had to develop the skill of reconnection.
0: Let's see. Uh, Nancy in Columbus. You're on the air. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Hi, Christy.
1: Hi. I
3: have a question. Yeah, I have a question about the genre itself, memoir, and I wanted to know, after you finish writing, do you ever go back and revisit some of those parts of your life, Um, like going through a photo album and just going backwards in time that way?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And especially with this book, particularly because other than one very, very important friend of mine, they're all still alive and well out in the world. And I have revisited revisited those friendships in real life and also through the book and it definitely does have the feel it's like a 3D photograph album right like I land in San Francisco there's a woman who lives there who's in the book as part of the high school chapter and there she is having lunch with me and coming to my book reading it's this extraordinary experience of touring on a book about friendship while friendship is happening in my life and continuing to evolve beyond the pages it's a it's a complete dream come true. And I didn't know that was going to happen. Is this Leah? No, oh, yes, Leah, Leah, and also, um, Bree and yeah. all my high school friends. So that part has been Leah. Actually, she, she we, I, I fell out with her essentially, or I ghosted her in high school cause I fell in love and you know how that goes. And we just didn't talk for like 30 years. We reconnected. And as the book was coming out, she read the early drafts which she is in and we've really really come back together not because of the book but the book is part of our story now and it's an extraordinary experience that i didn't know when i was writing this book all these friends were going to come back to me
0: did she share your well of course you couldn't share literally your perspective but did she get your perspective
1: absolutely when we the first it it tracked with her she she totally understood and the the greatest gift that my high school friends that I ghosted gave me, we all ended up on a Zoom together at the height of the pandemic. And I could tell they had all stayed in touch. They all knew each other's children and where they would lived all along. And I didn't even, I wasn't even sure where everybody was. And I, at one point, someone sort of talked about the elephant in the room, like, Christy, where did you go <laughs> for 30 years? And I was able to just say, honestly, you know, I spent a lot of time chasing alcoholic relationships, and then I was too scared to come back and too ashamed, and I didn't know how, and I'm so glad to be here now, which is already a wonderful opportunity, but then each one of them said, oh, I t- I had a hard time in my 20s. I had a hard time in my late 30s, and everybody united with me instead of acting like I'm the only one who's had a hard time over 30 years. It was an incredible act of joining, which really, really solidified, I get to be back and keep doing this.
0: Nancy, thanks for that call. Uh, Let's see, Jay in Lancaster, you're on the air. Hi, Jay.
3: Hi. Um, I was just calling in because, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, how people aren't able to have as good of relationships. And the other day um, I was watching a, a YouTube video, and in the comment section of that video, I saw someone talking about, you know, how uh, they feel they've missed out on experiences with uh, other people because of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and also the time that they grew up in. And I feel like social media is one of these things that's meant to bring people together, but it's also detrimental to uh, relationships in a certain way.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I could not agree more, Jay. I feel like... I have to be very careful how I use social media as a as a person interested in friendship and connection. There are times when I can log on and have a quick connection with someone. It's not the same as going to coffee, but it is a connection. But if I if I'm in the wrong state of mind or in a spiritually low place and emotionally low, if I look on there and I see Oh, all these families went to Cancun together. It's just like we we're worried about our kids and I am worried about kids and friendship and social media, but also for me as a as an adult woman with a very full, happy life, I can get taken down by the images I see and the way that it looks other people have better lives than I do. So I have to be very careful and intentional and i'm not always like that believe me but the the more intention i bring to my use of social media the better i'm able to use it to foster friendships instead of alienate myself
0: and you know along the same lines besides social media is just the remote way we communicate i i just did a segment on how it's so much healthier to pick up the phone and call somebody or schedule a phone call instead of you know some relationships exist almost Completely through texting.
1: Yes, I, I I agree with you completely. What I've started doing with friends is like 10 minutes. Like I'll call a friend, I'll say, we got 10 minutes. And maybe this is a friend who's a writer and a mother and a lawyer. And so we have a lot of, th- we could cover a lot of ground and I'll call and I'll say, I've got 10 minutes. Can we just talk about raising teenage girls? Like we just pick one one lane and we talk for 10 minutes and it's so much better. We could have just sat and texted for 10 minutes. That's, that's not nothing. But those phone calls are starting to really enrich me in ways that I'm not willing to just do text anymore.
0: You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. I'm talking to bestselling author Christy Tate. Her new book's titled BFF, A Memoir of Friendship Lost and Found. If you have a question or comment, want to weigh in on this topic, give us a call. 614-292-8513 or email us at allsides at wosu.org. you are brutally honest in sharing your shortcomings, and you, you know you're, you're holding forth today in the same way. Um, and and I was kind of fascinated by how you have turned something that you thought separated you from others into something that unites you with others. That talking about uh, your apartness unites you.
1: Yes. I find that to be an incredible paradox. And if I had to trace where did that come from? I think I learned that through 12-step recovery. I go I go into these meetings for several different issues and you think, "Oh, I can't tell anyone this. I'm not going to tell anyone." You tell a room of people, some of them are strangers, some of them you know, and that's how I've learned how to get better. Like that's also what therapy is, right? I'm going to te- I'm going to tell my deep dark secrets and it always my first impulse is like don't tell anyone don't tell anyone and i f- have found and i work the muscle of telling and that is where my all of my connections come from telling the truth and it, it's impossible for me to ignore that and so i can't imagine i mean i understand i don't have to tell all these stories i don't have to go as far as i do i'm just a little bit like that <laughs> um and the writers that i love have gone to really dark places, and those books have brought me great comfort and great a great sense of humanity. And the the idea that I could give that to a reader, it just feels like a huge privilege and an honor.
0: Like I have a, 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 an article that kind of kicked off with um, your a, a, a critique. Uh, for lack of a better word, on on your your New York Times, your 2020 book group, How One Therapist in a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life, and it talked about the whole art of the memoir and how much is too much. TMI, too sure. much information, and they kind of kicked off with you and they talked about other people. You might have seen it, too. I mean, what was, What is the experience like um, sharing so much like that with the world, not with a BFF?
1: Sure. Well, what's interesting to me is now that I've done two memoirs, it is much easier for me to share with strangers than it is to share with my intimates in part, I can't totally explain that other than I'm never going to see a reader in Bangladesh who writes me an email, either positive or negative, right? I'm, I'm never going to see that person. But the woman in the carpool line who's read my book, who I our sons go to school together, and they play basketball together, who says something to me about the book, that's much more exposing, because that's my everyday life. And I agree I have heard from readers like "Ooh, you you went too far for me <laughs> and I I respect that as a as a writer and a reader and I'm a reader and a writer who's who's I'm gonna go all the way I don't know how to tell the story without the gritty details and I haven't had I haven't had disadvantageous ex like there's no consequence of that other than some people don't like it and I I can live with that.
0: There was another aspect to that article that talked about the fact that you shared with your um, group therapy, uh, you know, your with that group individually, what you wrote about them.
1: Yes. Yes. Certainly. That was way t- in my mind. It was very sensitive with my first book. I'm writing about a therapeutic process. No. And I was in a group. Nobody goes to therapy hoping someone in the group is going to go and write a book about it. And I was sensitive to that from day one so I told them I think I'm writing about this and they were involved in how I was disguising they got to pick their disguises and I sent them early drafts and then subsequent drafts and when they asked me to change something like there was one person he didn't want to read a person in my group didn't want to read the manuscript which is fine that's also a choice but his wife read it and she asked me to change a biographical detail and I was happy to do that because those relationships are more important to me than my art, if you will. And I didn't want to betray anyone. And I believed and I was supported by my group that there's a way to tell my story without betraying other people or betraying my own ethics. And we, I, I let them help me thread that needle. Did you do the same thing with this book, This this book was a little bit different. I didn't feel the pressure to share as as carefully, I guess I would say, because the therapeutic the therapeutic scenario was not part of it. But the friends, the sensitive friendships in there, like there's a friend in there who I I did just very abruptly ghost for reasons that I'm not proud of and I wouldn't do today, but it happened. That friendship, I wanted to be very careful about her feelings, and I sent her early drafts. And I, I can't believe the generosity with which my friends have responded. They're like, "Write your book, tell your story." And we've acknowledged they have a different version of events, like any story. There's multiple versions, and they have supported me writing my version, and I was very careful to be hard on myself and give them all the grace that that was the only way I was going to be able to write about friendship because these people are still my friends and they don't they don't need me to take their inventory I'm here to look at myself and my bad behavior and talk about what happened and how I'm different now
0: you know you talk about your bad behavior but it was path it was there was a pathology behind
1: it it was sad yes I mean I definitely feel like I mean not sad in a it was so sad. I, I no, mean, I, I
0: mean, d- like it made me. It made me feel
1: sad. Yes, it was certainly born of. There's lots of forces, and but when I first started working on my friendships at the invitation of a friend, my friend Meredith, she's like, maybe now that you're settled romantically, you want to w- look at your friendships, and I knew she was right. And what I felt about that was, all of a sudden, I was like, I am going to take responsibility. The reasons why I've ghosted or bit felt insecure or been apart, those are valid and we'll bring them out to the light of day. But I didn't want to use them anymore as excuses. I wanted to change and take responsibility. And the only way I could do that was with the help of someone else who was willing to do it right next to me, doing her own friendship work.
0: Right. Tell us about Meredith.
1: Yeah. So I met Meredith at the end at a twelve-step meeting, and she was twenty years my senior. And because at the time I was so immature on the subject of friendship, I didn't recognize her as a friend. I thought, well, your friends look like you and they're in the same stage of life and um, it took a couple of years before I realized like this woman is like, could be a friend. Like what else could she be? And she, like I said, she tapped me on the shoulder and we had so much in common that I think she intuited that before I did. We both had golden sisters. It turned out they had the same name, yeah. <laughs> which is like this incredible synergy. The sort of
0: thing that we just glom onto, right? Yeah, totally.
1: I was like, we didn't even realize it at first, but, um, And she, too, had struggled with a lot of the things I did, an eating disorder, depression, addiction in her family. And we were just looked at each other and we're like, "Okay, so what? What are we going to do about that? We can't change the facts of our biology and our history, but we wanted to excavate together and do better. And I think our early intentions, as I understood them, was to get better with our friendships out in the world what I didn't anticipate was how I would learn to be a good friend by being a friend to Meredith and having her friend me that was like a huge bonus of the whole process
0: we're gonna talk about that more my guest is Christy Tate best-selling author her new book is titled BFF a memoir of friendship lost and found we'll be right back this is all sides with Ann Fisher on 89 7 NPR news
2: This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies.
0: Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. We're talking about friendship, the fragility of it for some, the strength of it for others, and what it takes to be a good friend. My guest is Christy Tate. She's the best-selling author. And, uh, her new book is titled BFF, A Memoir of Friendship Lost and Found. If you have a question or comment for Christy, give us a call, 614-292-8513, or email us at allsides at wosu.org. When... I got to the part in the book where Meredith is telling you that she's sick, mm-hmm. um, really sick. You immediately launch into, <laughs> I was I was surprised about what a rotten friend you're going to be, and you're just like prepping her. Yes, like I'm just getting, to, just, I'm just prepping you. And I, I mean, were, were, I think you were on the phone. I'm not sure you were actually in person because I kept thinking, is she smiling? Is Meredith? smiling like oh here we go and and everything tell me about that it
1: was we were actually in person it was this grave grave moment where she's reading to me her scans and I'm I have no medical background but I knew it was bad and tears are running down my cheeks and hers too so it's 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 all as you would imagine a moment like that to be and then like I started shaking and she's and like the tone sort of changed and she's like what are you, what what's going on with you and i was like i was like meredith i just have to tell you i'm i i'm going to fail you and you know i'm going to fail like no one knew my foibles as a friend greater than meredith and i thought i have let go of friendships or drifted away at every big transition having babies going to college that's where my friendship ruptures would happen and i couldn't imagine that i would be able to be by her side as she deserved me to be. I didn't know if I could do it through whatever she was about to face. And I just, I could picture so clearly the day when I would be like upset about my hair or something so, so, so trivial. And she would be, you know, getting a chemo port. And I just thought what I was worried about in that scenario I knew Meredith would forgive me. She had a big heart and she believed in me and she didn't need me to be perfect, but I still needed me to be perfect, certainly before a friend who was dying. And I just thought, if I make a misstep, what's going to happen is you, Meredith, will forgive me, but I won't forgive myself. And then I'm going to back away from you out of shame. And so she just, she laughed. Then we were laughing and crying at that point. And she said, well, then you just need to mess up early. Get it out of your system because I need you. Did you? Yes, (laughs) I did. (laughs) I I like to do what people say. I like to follow orders. And (laughs) I, you know, it's a very confusing thing. Anybody who's had a friend in crisis, and it certainly doesn't have to be health crisis, like a divorce or any kind of crisis. It feels like, i wanted to be such a good friend but i also had ideas about what that should look like and i really wanted her to get this top shelf medical help and i wanted her go to the sloan Kettering, and that's not what she wanted and it's not what she needed and i did some pushing which was not well received and i finally had to accept that being a friend to her had nothing to do with pushing it had to do with honoring her choices which seems so basic but I really was scared that I was supposed to be the friend to, like, pack her up and let's go to M.D. Anderson. And I didn't want to fall down on the job. But really the job was quieter and harder than going to M.D. Anderson.
0: Scott in West Jefferson, you're on the air. Hi, Scott.
3: Hey, good good morning. Um, the purpose of my call is I've really been enjoying listening to your um, author speak About 24 years ago, my wife, we'd been married a couple of years, um, always heard me talk about my former high school and college roommates and friends and other individuals. And on my 50th birthday, she presented me with a wonderful scrapbook of just letters from all of these people that I hadn't been in contact with for over 20-some years. And it was a wonderful gift to me. And a lot of those people, we are still in contact 25 years later. Mm. It's been a wonderful gift, and I just wanted to share that.
1: Thank you, Scott. That's wonderful. It sounds like your wife is a good friend to you. And I love how the ways that friendship can come out of left field or other people can help me rise up like my friend Meredith had she not tapped me on the shoulder I probably I would have been fine I probably would have limped along I would have I would have learned lessons that come about from time and maturity but the fact that she offered me this opportunity to like actually get out a piece of paper write my history do some like excavation that came about because of her friendship and her understanding of of what we could do together. And I love that. And I love the gift that your wife gave you. Most of my connections have happened because there was a a door opened and I walked through it. So so it sounds like you too, Scott, like your wife presented an opportunity, but it sounds like you have then taken this up and you have kept the connection going. Sometimes we just need a push from the outside and then we can can join the stream of the friendships that, that are right in front of us thanks a lot, Scott, for that call. We
0: have still have a few minutes six one four two nine two eight five one three if you want to uh, talk about friendship with Christy Tate. Um, I want to talk about Meredith. I really want to talk about Meredith, but in in juxtaposed with um, his question, your spouse has been very supportive. It could have gone differently.
1: Oh, my God. That's so funny you say that. Yesterday, my daughter called me, and she said she went down to the nurse at school to get an ibuprofen, and the school nurse had just read BFF, and she said, you know who the hero of this book is? And I I mean, I'm low-key, kind of hoping she'll say me. <laughs> she did not, reader. She did not. She's like, your, your, your dad, who's my husband, he's the hero of this book, which I actually love that because it really does take a spouse who's secure and wants the best for my mental health to support me doing all this running around and developing friendships because that takes time away the the whole problem with friendship in some ways comes down to time like people are busy with careers and family maybe sick parents and kids and pets it's easy to squeeze out friendship and without my spouse's support I don't know how this happens. So you're absolutely right that he is a huge part of the story and his support is quiet and steady and unending.
0: It's kind of like what you don't say about him. You don't <laughs> have to say much about him because he's just he's there and he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. It's like electricity. He's just humming <laughs> yeah, along.
0: Flip the switch. and There he is. He's just on. That's right. Meredith. um, was 20 years older than you and it it, on its surface it seems like you don't have anything in common you found out you did you know you thought that you were going to fail her um at the hardest time of her life when did you realize you wouldn't
1: i think it was really towards maybe i mean it went so fast so the end also feels like the beginning right i think that there was a day when i I got a call from her, and I was in the middle of a law meeting at my at my law office. And I kicked everyone out of the room, and I just listened to her crying, like that that primal cry. It's like she finally realized she was kind of like, I don't want to go. It was that kind of cry, and I sat back and I thought, there's just no way on earth I'm gonna fail. Like I just I I can't. I simply cannot. And I had done enough work. I think that moment I realized I had done enough work with her that I just wanted her to have the kind of passing that she deserved. And what my initial fears were, of course, that I was going to be selfish and at a moment when she needed me. Another fear was, what if her other friends become more important? I was very, you know, triangles and scarcity. All those middle school things came back, rushing back to me. And I realized that, I didn't care about, I didn't care the pecking order. Like, am I going to be the first person she calls when there's news? You grew. I grew. I totally grew. And there were there were moments when I just thought, oh, my God, it's happening. I've done the thing. And now Meredith is going to go and she's not going to get to reap the benefits of the better Christie, you know.
0: <laughs> Beating yourself up again. Let's see. Kathy in Columbus, you're on the air. Hi, Kathy.
1: Hi.
0: Go ahead.
3: Um, I just wanted uh, to thank your guest for sharing. Um, I work for a local hospice here in Columbus, and I've seen 360-degree uh, um, stories like you're talking about. And I recently uh, – my wife and I recently went on a little uh, weekend trip, and I said, hey, let's listen to this audiobook. I had no idea. I was familiar with the author, who is Elizabeth Berg, B-E-R-G, I had listened to several of her books. But for my wife, I think, oh, this is only six hours. Let's listen to it this weekend. It was called Talk Before Sleep. Mm. And it almost, as your guest is is talking about, it's about this woman and her friends and how all of her friends are very close and very dear and very protective of this person, but how they're all so very different and how they go through this uh just this whole amalgamation of feelings and emotions and not wanting to let the person who is ill do this or do that. And Mm -hmm. finally they all kind of come around and, and they realize it's, it's not about us. It's not about our fears. It's not, it's about supporting her, but they do it in very different ways. And they're all right about it. (laughs) It's humorous and it's sad and it's joyful. And I just want to, um, you know, congratulate you and thank you. And it sounds like your friend was so very fortunate, and you are so very fortunate to have experienced um, experienced that kind of friendship. It is not easy, but it is so so very rewarding. And 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 you can't do anything wrong. You just learn how to do things better. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. I had never. I had never had to help a friend die before. And I didn't know what I realized in that experience, which was so extraordinary and honestly, such an honor to to be a witness to that. What I realized all growing up and through the troubled part of my friendship life, everything was a hierarchy, like who's head, who's got status, like that fifth grade social climber was alive and well for so much of my life. And with Meredith, and especially her last few days, I really started to appreciate and understand and want to be part of a circle, like a circle of friends where there's no hierarchy. We're all just holding hands. We're helping Meredith get to the other side. At some point, it'll be my turn. And I just didn't, I lost my interest and my investment in hierarchy which I think was at the root of my friendship problems. Like, who's better? Who's the golden sister? Who's going to win? That just fell away. And I think it fell away because it was so extraordinary and probably because we'd done a lot of prep work <laughs> in the area of friendship. And it was, it was completely glorious to be free of that and to just be part of a circle.
0: Hmm. Kathy, thanks so much for that call. Um, it's still there, the circle.
1: It is still there, it's absolutely still there. There was a woman who I was very, very envious of, really seriously envious of, and I was always scared that she was gonna be closer to Meredith than I would be and I at the end of the day, I don't actually know who was closer it It's so not the point, right? It's so not the point and we've been able to stay close she actually was the person to call me when meredith had passed and i would like to report that we just cried together and i didn't spend time thinking about like well why did she get the information instead like that's sh- we just cried and i think sometimes that chatter and that envy that goes on in my head and the over analysis i think that serves the purpose of dulling my feelings because i think i'm full of feeling and in this case it was so obvious we're grieving our friends she's gone and I really appreciate that we've all stayed close and we invoke Meredith's name all the time. And it's a really beautiful thing. It keeps her alive. It keep, certainly keeps her memory and her legacy. This book is her legacy. It's, it's my life and this book. And it goes on and on. And there'll be ripple effects through readers, which makes me feel so grateful. And she'd be so tickled <laughs> to know all, all the people who know about her now. Did
0: you anticipate the book While she was still alive?
1: I knew I was going to write about her, yes. And I had told her in the hospital, I said, I had already written a novel. No one's ever seen it. It's handwritten in some notebook. And I was working out my feelings about losing a friend. And I told her, I said, Oh, I wrote this novel. And she asked if she lived and I lied and said, yes. <laughs> and then I told her Then she knew I was lying. I was like, no, you didn't. I'm sorry. And she just grabbed my hands and she looked at me and she said, keep writing. And I said, I will. I know I will. And she was like, tell, tell people how we changed each other's lives. And I thought, well, I'm not going to write a book about our friendship. I, it didn't seem like it was going to be that on the nose. But looking back now maybe she as usual saw something before I could see it and I feel like her her I definitely feel like I have her blessing which is a relief because I don't know I think it'd be difficult to write about someone who is no longer here if I didn't have the blessing that would be ethically a lot trickier for me
0: how so you talked about it you blunted your feelings by being the outsider it was by Living this life um the way you did it, and having the tr- trust issues, the envy issues, the jealousy issues. So now, do you just feel like a puddle of tears all the time I mean, when you <laughs> while well, you're not blunting your, luck- your feelings?
1: <laughs> Luckily, Anne, I spread it between tears and anxiety. and here's here's the part that my therapist was telling me for years, and I didn't believe him that underneath the shame, and the anxiety, and the sadness, and the rage, and the terror, that underneath that would be joy. And I'm grateful that I've stuck around long enough that if my life, if my emotions in a day are a pie chart, that there's a huge slice for joy, and contentment, and satisfaction. And there's all that other stuff too, but there's so much reward for doing the work, and it's something so simple, which is joy, which has sort of been elusive for me, because I'm I'm pretty high-strung, I'm pretty upset about myself and the state of the world, but I found quiet pockets of joy, which is underneath all of that, and I think I'd been seeking that all along too.
0: I'm curious, we only have about a minute left, just about how this has affected you as a parent.
1: Oh my gosh, well, the number one thing is, both of my kids are in middle school, there's a lot of complex dynamics, as you all know. One of the things I've learned early on is I don't tell them what to do, I don't tell them how I would do it. I just share stories of my own friendship. And I bring them to present day because I want to normalize the idea that friendships take work. They're hard and confusing for adults. Sometimes I get my heart broken as an adult friend. And it's not just a middle school thing. And I'm in it with them. That's that's the best I got for them because my advice is just not that. It's not that helpful and they're not listening. (laughs) (laughs) Christy
0: Tate, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. This has been a real joy.
0: Christy Tate is the author of a new book. It's titled BFF, A Memoir of Friendship Lost and Found. It's a Reese's Book Club selection. She's also the author of the 2020 New York Times bestseller group, How One Therapist in a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. Speaking of Saving My Life, thanks to the All Side staff, senior producer Marcus Charleston, assistant producer Aaron Esmont-Rabinowitz, intern producers Chantel Brown, Chris Corcoran, Ethan Miller, and Nicole Nowicki, with video production by The Ohio Channel and board operation by Chris Johnston. Alan Disenzo is the composer of our theme music. WSU News and Public Affairs Director Mike Thompson, Radio Operations Director Kevin Petrilla, and Senior Broadcast Technician Eric French. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.